Well, welcome to a special Rebel Podcast episode. Uh, I'm P. Nate, and uh, I'm joined today by uh, good friends of our ministry, uh, Jacob Rayom and uh, Dr. Joe Boot. Uh, Joe Boot, you'll know, uh, you'll recognize his voice from the Podcast for Cultural Re- Reformation, which is uh, part of the Rebel uh, Reformed Rebel Network. Um, and Jacob Rayom has been on the podcast, I think, more than any other special guest, Jacob. So I think this is maybe your fourth time on the on the podcast. So uh, welcome, gentlemen. It's an honor to be here, Nate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Nate. It's good to be with you today. Well, for those uh, for those listening, um, these are not just uh, um, friends of mine. These are brothers in arms. Um, these are men who have been uh, heavily involved in uh, the uh, efforts in Ontario to uh, reopen churches after the first lockdown. Uh, these have been men who have been instrumental in the legal pushback on the uh, the what we would care, what we would say is uh, government overreach. These uh, health mandates. During all of this, uh, two men who have helped other pastors think clearly um, about sphere sovereignty, about the responsibility of the church, about the upholding of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And uh, so we're, we're indebted to these two men for all that they've done for us, uh, whether you know it or not. And uh, today, uh, what we want to talk about is an article from our friends over at the, uh, the Gospel Coalition Canada. And uh, Paul Martin who is a pastor and uh, a writer and uh, an author. Um, and uh, as we were just saying, uh, all right, we, we respect Paul Martin. He's done a lot to advance the gospel in the Toronto area. And uh, many of you who are listening probably know Tim Challies, who is a part of his church, a prominent blogger in sort of the reformed evangelical world. Uh, but Paul Martin published an article uh, not too long ago, and uh, it is in sort of response to another friend of ours who's been a co-laborer in our efforts to reopen Ontario churches, uh, Aaron Rock. So Paul Martin wrote a, uh, an article that's titled, Does a Bad Government Deserve to be Disobeyed? And it starts off by saying, recently, Pastor Aaron Rock published a lengthy essay calling the church in Canada to divine obedience over civil, diso- or over civil obedience. In it, he offered nine reasons Christians must disobey the provincial legislation to limit their in-person gatherings for worship to 10 persons. I was glad to read his arguments and ponder them during the last few days. It is a bold thing to put other Christians under a moral obligation, in this case, to disobey provincial law. And then Paul Martin goes on to say some nice things about Aaron, um, but then to begin to um, disagree with the thrust of his article. So I'll just start off. You guys, you men have had an opportunity to read Paul Martin's um, blog post. What were your initial impressions? Well, my first impression, Nate, um, was disappointment. And the disappointment came not so much from um, what Paul, what Pastor Paul said, um, as much as the the timing and the purpose of the article. I mean, here we have our brother Aaron Rock, who has been really at the forefront of reopening churches in Ontario. Um, he was involved, as we know, Pastor Aaron was involved in the reopen uh, Ontario Churches.ca document, as with uh, uh, Dr. Boot, and then which led to advocacy for the churches, which led to the churches reopening, and then was involved in the Niagara Declaration, and um, which was essentially just an articulation of the separation of church and state or sphere sovereignty. 
which uh, is enshrined in our constitution uh, to a degree. And then beyond that, uh, Windsor became one of the first jurisdictions in Ontario uh, outside of Toronto to go into lockdown last weekend. And so Aaron, true to his convictions, uh, led his church to reopen uh, under the threat of fines, under the threat of arrest, uh, in violation of the, of the various orders that they've received. And so only hours, I mean, we're talking two or three days before Aaron's church is about to open as, as a matter of principle, um, uh, Paul Martin publishes this article critiquing what I would consider to be a very minute point of exegesis in um, Aaron in an article that Aaron read a while ago. And, not, and that's not to mention the fact that um, there was a, a worship protest in Toronto just a few weeks ago when Toronto was first put under lockdown where Paul Martin pastors and Aaron took the eight hour uh, round trip drive from Windsor with some of his people to participate um, on the stage in that protest uh, in uh, to stand in solidarity with the churches in Toronto. So, and that's a, tr and that's an, that's where I, I didn't see, I mean, I didn't see Paul Martin at that protest. No, maybe he was, but he's a tall guy. I, I think he would stand out in the crowd. I didn't see him there, but Aaron was. And so, you know, Paul Martin has his own convictions and so on, but for a brother of Aaron to be putting himself, brother like Aaron to be putting himself at this much risk, um, front and center in defense of the churches in Ontario, which his church has benefited from, and then for no thanks to be offered for his effort, as far as I know, and then to be put in the crosshairs of this mi very, very minute, I think it's just more of a phraseology of how Aaron put it than anything, as I tried to discern exactly what uh, Martin is saying, um, it, it just, it boggled my mind. It, it really, it, and it, it didn't just boggle my mind, it disappointed me. It disappointed me um, and really, really disheartened me uh, for a host of reasons, not the least of which is how much love uh, Aaron has shown towards the churches in Ontario at this time. Yeah, I think you did a, a great summary there, Jacob, and I want to circle back to some of that just so our, our listeners kind of get the full context. Um, but uh, um, I want to let uh, Joe speak as well, because uh, I, I think what we want to speak to first here is just sort of that disappointment that we felt as we first encountered the article. So, Joe, you read this article and what went through your mind at, uh, first? Yeah, obviously, these are difficult moments, aren't they? Because... Um, both uh, Reverend Paul Martin and Aaron Rock, I consider friends. Um, the uh, uh, Toronto um, Gospel Alliance was something I've been involved for many years as a pastor at Westminster Chapel with Paul Martin. And I've seen the, uh, and been blessed by the faithfulness of his ministry. And that's, I think, what Jacob is, uh, and you have both rightly pointed out. And so for me also, uh, because Aaron is also a very dear friend and has been in uh, very much in lockstep with me. Jacob mentioned the reopen Ontario churches, the Niagara Declaration, the, the, the worship protest at Queen's Park um, has been, uh, you know, working. I've had the pleasure of working closely with Aaron and know him to be a, a, a tremendously faithful, committed servant of the Lord, who's only got the good of his people, uh, his church, and actually the kingdom of God in his heart. And I would say that broadly, um, I've been disappointed by the early showing in general from uh, the, the Gospel Coalition. 
um, in terms of the articles that thus far we've seen published. Um, I was contacted recently to answer some questions. Uh, there may be a forthcoming article, we're expecting a forthcoming article where I'm answering a couple of questions that I hope will be posted on the Gospel Coalition's website. But I think part of the discouragement uh, for me, the sadness for me was not uh, only for the, the, the sense of sadness I had for Aaron and the discouragement that I felt that I know Jacob felt also at that moment. But the fact that to some degree, it feels as though there's been one uh, official orthodox position put forward and um, a series of articles, sort of one following the other, that really just seemed to be circling the wagons around the justification of not opening the church. And a lot of them th seem like, frankly, arguments after the fact. And I think the what Jacob described as a kind of nitpicking in this article, where I would agree that um, it wasn't the most judicious uh, or, or the most uh, accurate statement to say that, um, that Romans 13 presupposes that uh, governments are doing what Paul prescribes there to be due submission. I know overall what Jacob was driving at, uh, what uh, Nathan, um, Aaron, I beg your pardon, was driving at. And uh, I think a lot more charity uh, is in order there when you read the thrust of what he's saying and a broader engagement with the arguments that he's actually making. These are real world arguments for the church uh, to respond to in a situation of crisis. And I think to on the eve of his church opening, my own church has been open in the in the gray zone for four weeks now. I know how difficult it is Sunday by Sunday, the tremendous pressure you are under, uh, the, the tremendous uncertainty you're dealing with all of the time uh, and the care for your own people. To sort of get that uh, unloaded on you, um, it, it's it's sad. It's 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 uh, it's deeply disappointing that that is, has been the posture uh, that we've seen from the Gospel Coalition to this point. And, and so I, I, I want us to get into it, but I do want to make sure that we're not falling into the same errors that um, we're accusing our brothers of. So let me just take a moment to say that um, there have been many things, um, men like Paul Carter, Paul Martin, Wyatt Graham, um, who have been part of the Gospel Coalition uh, writers team um, and uh, and that sort of thing, who have written some very helpful articles for the uh, churches in Ontario. Um, I there's a lot that we can say uh, in their favor, but um, I think the reason we're doing this, and I, I want our, our listeners to understand this, and we're recording this just a couple of days before Christmas. Um, this isn't what we want to be doing. <laughs> we, we don't get any joy in, in this. Um, when, uh, when brothers uh, fight in and amongst themselves, uh, there is a grieving that goes on because um, our, our efforts could be much better spent. Um, but part of the issue here is not just us coming to the defense of our friend, though that will come out because as uh, both Jacob and, and Joe described, Aaron has been a brother uh, and not just a brother, but a hero for a lot of pastors and churches in Ontario. Uh, and many people don't know his name, though they owe him a great debt. Um, but beyond that, um, the, the problem as I see it with the Gospel Coalition and, and certainly with Paul Martin's article and some of the earlier articles that have come out um, from men like Paul Carter and, and Wyatt Graham uh, seems to be that uh, they, they can latch on to some finer points of theology and kind of exegete them uh, to death 
without any sort of real practical application for the Christians and the pastors who are dealing with real world problems. And that's not to say that these aren't real world pastors. They are. Paul Martin and Paul Carter, both pastor churches, and I'm sure they're, they're um, dealing with all of the same pastoral concerns that we three are. And yet um, their articles seem to be of no practical help to people who are um, going through and trying to think through these things. Early on, when Ontario was locked down, it seemed to be that the only orthodox view being put out, whether it was from the Gospel Coalition or many of the prominent evangelical voices in, in southwestern Ontario, was a sort of unnuanced um, approach of obedience to the state. And, uh, and I think that it was uh, unclear and unhelpful. And I think Aaron and Joe, uh, and actually uh, some of the early seminars that you did as well, Jacob, were some of the, the first uh, kind of prominent teachings I was seeing from evangelical leaders in Ontario who were starting to push back and ask questions and apply biblical law and biblical theology to um, these unprecedented times that we're in. So we're not doing this because we want to pick a fight. We're not doing this because we don't like the gospel coalition. We are doing this because we're pastors and we want the Christians in Ontario to think Christianly about the very um, strange and difficult times that we find ourselves in. Does that resonate with you too? Yeah, and it, everything that you said resonates with me because I've known of um, I've known of Paul Martin's ministry for and followed his ministry for over well well over a decade, and um, for, as I followed him from a distance when I was in Bible college, I would say he would be one of the first pastors that would introduce me to um, sovereign grace of God and salvation. So he has had an influence on me and my interactions with him. I have found it typically been edifying and I have left my times with him thinking that I want to love my savior more um, because he has motivated me to do so. But most definitely a lot of the, I believe a lot of the gospel coalition stuff, especially this article um, comes across is, is, is just too detached, too cerebral, too cold and too much like a seminary lab without the realization that we are dealing with what is probably the biggest external threat to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ we might have ever seen in this country. I don't know if we've ever seen something like this um, on this continent, maybe. So yeah, it, everything you said, Nate, resonates with me. And I'm, I'm, having a, I'm having a really hard time with it and really hard time reconciling um, the, the warmth that I know of Paul Martin with um, what he has uh, written here and the timing of it all also. I think that um, uh, one of the things that the, the, these issues that we're, we're talking about highlight, uh, Nate, at the minute, is that uh, evangelicals and, you know, even reformed evangelicals uh, who have a reformed soteriology at any rate, um, have been good at speaking about the importance of scripture, the importance of the infallibility of scripture, the uh, importance of expository preaching, justification by faith, um, and so forth. Uh, some of these core, what we would consider core gospel issues. I think where we've been weaker, and I think some of what we're wrestling through now um, manifests that weakness, 
is the development of uh, a distinctly Christian world and life view. You use the expression thinking Christianly. And uh, uh, Jacob has just referred to uh, the fact that, um, you know, we're, we're in a really an unprecedented crisis situation for the church. And yet much of the, um, the commentary that we're hearing uh, seems to offer little uh, real world uh, guidance uh, from a distinctly scriptural standpoint. And I think that's because there is a difference between the professional study of theology and professional preaching as a pastor and the development of a distinctly Christian world and life view that applies to every area of life. The, 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 the doctrines of scripture need to be schematized and then contextualized, that is uh, applied in the real world. So it's not just the formal authority of scripture we need to affirm, but the material authority of the word of God. Um, and uh, that means that we have to wrestle through a, a Christian world and life view, looking at the whole counsel of God and examining how we as, uh, as Christians respond to the cultural, the, the incredibly challenging cultural issues of our time. This is gospel culture 101, if you will, church state relationship. But we've given so little time to those things. And I think there's been even some acknowledgement in one or two of the articles that I've seen um, that people just haven't thought about questions like um, sphere sovereignty. They're not even familiar with the, the work of men like Abraham Kuyper. They've not thought through church-state relations, the implications of the lordship of Jesus Christ for law, politics, education, medicine, the, the very issues of uh, socialized medicine and so on. So the very narrow application of, of a churchianity, if you will, we've been very focused on the Bible as it relates simply to the institutional life of the church and personal salvation. We've not given adequate time to wrestling through and thinking through the relationship of the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fullness of his word to our cultural life. And I think that shortcoming, which you know the Ezra Institute has been trying to address for some time, is being made, uh, is sort of being laid bare in this situation in my view. Yeah, that's really good, Joe. I think it makes me think about um, in, in, at the end of Hebrews 5, heading into Hebrews 6, uh, I was about to say Paul, but the author of Hebrews, um, he, uh, he talks a little bit about um, uh, moving on from milk to solid food. And then as, as chapter 6 starts, it says, let us move on from the elementary um, doctrines of Christ, right? Like, and you're thinking, well, what's the milk and what's the solid food here? And he goes on to talk about the application of theology in everyday life. Like what the, sometimes we think that the, the milk is sort of surface level theology and, and the solid food is the deeper theology, the more complex theologies. But really what it is, is it's taking those elementary theologies, those doctrines and applying them to the actual world around us, how we relate to one another, how we relate to our neighbors, how we relate to the state. So I think you're absolutely right. So let's let's get into this article. And if any of the listeners have not read uh, Aaron Rock's first um, article on uh, on uh, calling the churches to divine obedience as a, over civil obedience, um, it's an excellent article, and I would commend it to you. And that's the article that Paul is responding to. And uh, just as we as we kind of get into Paul's um, uh, article here, he he grants. Aaron, the uh, premise that to uh, not always obey the state 
is okay. Okay, we all, he kind of says, we all agree that Acts 5, which is the go-to um, text where, you know, the apostles declare we must obey God rather than man. He grants him that. And he says, so the apostles receive this, uh, this uh, uh, instruction. And he goes on to say, so he says, this classic go-to text, when we consider any form of disobedience to be an authority, if that human authority instructs me to stop doing something God has clearly told me to do, then I am compelled to obey God, even if that infuriates men and leads to my suffering. So he grants that. Then he moves on to say, however, I am moving slowly through this text for a reason. It is too easy to miss a very clear and direct command from God had been given. The apostles were reacting to divine revelation, not their own opinions or interpretations of current events. And I, I got this impression that um, because of the divine visitation of the angel that told Paul uh, Peter to go and preach the gospel, that that was sort of licensed for him to then disobey the civil authorities. And so immediately what we're getting is a downgrade of the word of God, which is God's revelation to us, which commands meeting in the first place. This is kind of the first place where I feel like he starts to go off the rails a little bit. Um, either of you want to talk about that? Well, I can uh, uh, kick off. I mean, I think, uh, you know, having read the article a couple of times, uh, it's not entirely clear to me exactly what Paul Martin is trying to say. Um and, and these are, this is the first sort of caveat, which he doesn't really explain what conclusion he's reaching from it. No, uh, nobody reads the passage there um, in Acts 5, is not aware that there was um, instruction, a deliverance by the angels and then explicit instruction. But is Paul concluding from that, that we need special revelation from God or an angel uh, in order to uh, disobey human authorities um, uh, not to uh, not to preach or not to assemble or whatever. So, so first of all, I think that the, this part of the article um, struggles with um, ambiguity. Um, what exactly is he trying to say? I don't think he actually in the end tells us what his conclusion is from that. I, I, I sincerely hope it isn't that unless you've had special revelation, um, you can't obey civil authority. Um, we have special revelation already. It's the totality of the word of God. And sometimes I'm a little surprised that we don't uh, see deeper engagement with the Older Testament as well, because the, the Newer Testament is incomprehensible without the Older. The identity of Christ, his lordship, his kingship, his total authority is clearly set forth in the Older Testament. It's clearly accepted by the apostles. Think of Psalm 2, Psalm 110. Think of some of the examples. Think of Daniel, a real prototype for um, engagement with civic authorities. Daniel 3, Daniel 6. Uh, we don't just have the book of Acts. So sometimes, again, um, we have to make sure that we don't fall into a kind of Marcionism when we're dealing with the Bible, um, as though only the Newer Testament texts are of use in thinking about uh, our relationship to civic um, authority. So I think, I think that be, being generous, I think it's ambiguous what Paul is trying to say there. He doesn't seem to draw out a particular conclusion. I certainly hope, though, that it isn't that we need to be waiting for angelic or special revelation to disobey civic authority um, if it contravenes 
um, the, the word of God and requires us to do something uh, that God has forbidden or forbids us to do something that, uh, that God has required. He has, a, he has a very, very, at least as best as I can tell, a very tight grid uh, as to when we can disobey civil authorities or do not need to obey them. And there's multiple examples in scripture that we can note. For example, was Naboth in sin when he refused to give Ahab his vineyard? And obviously not, because Ahab was the one that was punished by God. But furthermore, as you think of, okay, so an angel from heaven reaffirmed uh, what God had already taught in Acts 5. And, but if an angel of God were to contradict what God has taught, may he be anathema and may he be damned to hell as per Galatians 1. And so if a government is, and we are being told that this government is the, is the minister of God, and we've heard this a lot. I mean, Romans 13 clearly teaches it. There is a proper time to obey the government, and there are exceptions to that. Their, their, their authority is not ultimate. But if a government of God, if a government has now redefined the love of neighbor such that love of neighbor now means we leave our neighbor isolated when they're needy, Love of neighbor means we no longer. Love of neighbor means we no longer have people in our homes for hospitality. Love of neighbor means we no longer smile at each other. Uh, love of neighbor means we no longer embrace people who are lonely. And I'm like, and I say that as one who is one of the least huggy people you'll ever meet. But but I know what it is to show love and affection and how much it means to someone who is uh, in loneliness and is in despair. And all of a sudden, what has happened is, is our government has put these massive burdens on the backs of our people, redefined what love of neighbor is. And I think we have a lot of um, pastors, potentially, who are reinforcing those burdens on people's backs. And if we really want to know what love of neighbor is, we simply look to the scriptures and they teach us. They absolutely teach us. And we don't need an angel of heaven um, uh, to teach us. And even if an angel of heaven were to contradict what the scriptures have already taught, um, let them be damned. I, it, it's what's interesting to me is you see the sort of differing opinions from those with some form of a platform right now. Um, you know, how long have we written about the sort of craftiness of the enemy and how, you know, sneaky he can be right in terms of disrupting God's plans. And yet, it seems to me like um, those taking Paul Martin and Paul Carter's position of sort of an unnuanced um, obedience to the civil magistrates right now, um, I think what they are waiting for is for the law to be passed down that says you, you cannot preach Christ and him crucified, you know, thus saith the state. And like, are we, are we, are we so naive as to think suddenly that the enemy has become unnuanced himself, <laughs> that that he doesn't have a, a strategy in shutting down the churches. And I've heard over and over and over again, and I've heard this from the Gospel Coalition, I've heard this from Paul Martin's you know, Facebook feed, that this is not Christian persecution because everybody is in the same boat. We're just being asked to do our duty alongside all of the other businesses, et cetera. And so just quickly respond to that, because, I mean, I think that attitude is at the foundation of a blog post like this. Any, any totalitarian state does not just target Christians, okay? 
the Ayatollah did not just outlaw Christianity. They outlawed a whole bunch of other things. I'm just reading a book about some of the terrors that people experienced behind the Iron Curtain during the Soviet era. And, it, you know, they, they prohibited the free exchange of goods and services. They destroyed the economy. They deemed their businesses essential and other people's businesses non-essential. That is the nature of totalitarianism. It is undiscriminate in the level of destruction that it brings to a society. And um, I think Aaron actually, in his, the blog that we're referencing that Aaron wrote, I thought did such a good job of um, indicating that persecution comes when the state is hindering the mission of God. That's right. And we have been commissioned by Christ who has been given all authority to go into all the nations and preach the gospel. And I don't need the state's permission to go somewhere. So sometimes for the sake of prudence, I will seek their permission, but I don't need their permission to visit my neighbor. I don't need their permission to be with my church family. I don't need the, my, their permission to go three blocks away to go into someone's home to preach the gospel to them. Are you kidding me? The Lord has already authorized me. That's right. Yeah. And I think that um, we need to be students of history as well as the Bible. Amen. Uh, Jacob's just given one example there. But if you look at almost any totalitarian regime uh, where the church suffered, uh, take um, uh, World War II Germany and the Third Reich, for example, intellectuals were targeted, books were burned, um, the, uh, the gypsies were targeted, the Jews were targeted, the confessing church uh, was targeted, men like Bonhoeffer and so on. So um, it's never been the case that in times of persecution, only uh, when you have a tyranny arise, that it's only uh, Christians that are on the uh, receiving end. And don't we have an obligation anyway to love our neighbor? I mean, even if, uh, aren't we obligated to be concerned with the, the lonely and the isolated in our community, with those whose uh, businesses have been destroyed? Just, just in the first few months of this, 100,000, over 100,000, Canadian businesses were decimated. People's livelihoods have been totally destroyed. Um, and uh, examples are made of business owners who try and uh, remain open and so on. So it isn't the, the, the calling of the Christian uh, to, to, to uh, love righteousness, do justice and walk humbly with our God um, is, is not to only act just when we feel that we've been told we can't preach the gospel. And I would, I would challenge the notion anyway that that was the line that was drawn by the apostles. If you go to the beginning of Acts 17, for example, um, where Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica, um, and there's a very interesting incident where the authorities have all been stirred up and the, the Jews are jealous and so on and so forth. And it says that, um, it says that when they couldn't find them, they're, they're at Jason's house, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now, um, there you have, there's no clear evidence there that there was um, a... Um, a detailed evangelical presentation of you must be born again. They're talking about the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was regarded as an act against the decrees of Caesar. And if we don't have the historical context as well, when we're reading the book of Acts, 
In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, which is often a memory verse for kids when you're growing up, it certainly was for me, um, for there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved. That is a almost a word-for-word -word rebuttal of the claims of Augustus Caesar, who claimed to be the savior of the world and the name above all names. It was printed on the coins, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. And so th those things were regarded as political offenses. To, to speak of the kingship and the lordship of Christ was a considered not some sort of narrow religious offense, but a political offense. So um, there were times when the disciples were, were huddled behind locked doors in fear of the Jews. They were meeting in, in secret, but they were meeting anyway. They were gathering anyway, despite their fear. So I think that if we are waiting for, well, we may not have to wait long for that law anyway, Nate, because uh, January 25th, I think um, Bill C-6 is going to be voted on. Yeah. And there is a bill that does effectively command us not to call people in sexual sin and rebellion against God to repentance. So it'll be interesting to see what we hear um, at that juncture. Um, that's a very, very dangerous law. But no, I don't think it, it holds water to say that unless only... Um, the church is singled out for uh, for persecution, that uh, it's not real persecution. That just has no historical basis at all. I think there's a, there's a naivete about um, the state and what evil actually is. I, I read to my youngest daughters, uh, Prince Caspian, recently, mm -hmm. Chronicles of Narnia. And when Aslan comes to rescue them he, he meets with lucy first and lucy essentially asks him why didn't you come um the same way you did last time to rescue us and aslan says to her things never happen the same way twice and i think if if jack boots had showed up on our shores um we would have been willing to fight but if these are people who have showed up even some of them with good intentions but there's nefarious powers behind this don't I mean, there's there's something very, very dark going on here, no doubt about it, because the work of Satan is evident. But these are people who have fancy degrees. These are people who have white lab coats. Um, these are people who talk like us and look like us. And these are institutions that we have trusted uh, for very, very long time. Uh, but this is still evil. And you know it's evil by the fruit that they're bearing among us and the devil's very he's very very tricky he comes as an angel of light he didn't come with a swastika around his arm this time he came differently and the level of carnage is different right now but it could get a lot worse um if things don't stop well so and and just in order to kind of jump ahead here for a second because one of the a couple of the quotes because paul martin's article then begins to quote a bunch, a bunch of prominent evangelicals um, and I, 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 I will not impute any motives in terms of filling it with so many quotes of prominent names, um, but a, a few names stand out to me, uh, and the two in particular, uh, you, you gentlemen might want to talk about some of the other quotes, but the two names that stand out to me are John Stott, um, and the, the, the quote from John Stott doesn't really make much of a point to the rest of the article. I'm, I'm a little bit flabbergasted as to why that quote is even there, but it was John Stott who I've heard Joe and Jacob and Aaron quoting quite often in the famous line when he says, when the government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then uh, 
uh, uh, civil resistance is a Christian duty. And so he's, he's quoting people who would not agree with him. And, and a, li- a little later in the article, he quotes um, John MacArthur. And uh, John MacArthur, uh, this is a quote from jo- that Paul Martin quotes of John MacArthur's. He says, uh, neither the Lord nor his apostles give any justification for political revolt, rebellion, or civil disobedience. There was no effort on his part to eliminate social or political injustice. And based on what you've already said, Joe, about the political nature of the very term Jesus is Lord, mm-hmm. um, that goes against Kaiser Curios. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just a dumbfounding statement and no mention of the fact that John MacArthur has since changed his tune on this. John, yeah. John MacArthur is leading the uh, the churches in California into civil disobedience. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's you've, you picked up a couple of really important points there. So again, I would say um, that there's an ambiguity here in Paul's argument. I'm not really sure what he's trying to say. There is a little bit of a a sort of quote mining thing going on here where I can't quite figure out exactly the point he's trying to make um, because certainly Stott uh, takes a very strong view um, on this. Um, MacArthur in the, in the, 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 his, his, his first quote there of, of John MacArthur um, or the second one, um, reference number 18 anyway. Uh, well, MacArthur in that statement is just plain wrong. He's just simply wrong. Um, and, uh, I think that what's happened this past year with John MacArthur is that um, he's come up against real world experience uh, of a persecution in the life of the church. And it's caused him to reevaluate his interpretation of that passage. The notion, the notion that neither the Lord nor his apostles gives any justification for political revolt, rebellion or civil disobedience. Uh, given that the gospel itself, its preaching was an act of civil disobedience in the first century, um, is complete nonsense. And, 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 and second, you only have to look at what Paul says, for example, in a, in a culture where, you know, maybe about one in four people you met in the street were slaves. What Paul says about slavery, uh, of course, drawn, drawn from uh, his um, understanding of the whole counsel of God. Uh, what Paul says about marriage, that Paul was preaching in a time where the father could dispose of his wife and children. He could even have them executed. And yet Paul teaches about what marriage really is. There's one of the building blocks, one of the fundamental spheres of society. Um, So Paul's teaching about marriage was totally revolutionary. His teaching about slavery, his actions with Philemon. um, These are revolutionary actions. They they very much give a ground for justification for uh, civil disobedience for um, the elimination of social and political injustice. I mean, if if the gospel of Christ, uh, which is about the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the rule and reign of God. Uh, he came to uphold the law according to, to, to Matthew 5. Not one uh, punctuation mark shall pass till all is accomplished. Uh, he's come to restore us. He's come, he, we, Christ came to, rest, to conform us to obedience to his son, that we might be conformed to the likeness of his son. And Christ was the truly obedient son who obeyed God's word perfectly. Um, if, if the gospel does not give us the, the, uh, a justification for the destruction of injustice and unrighteousness, what does it do? 
um, you know, Paul in Romans 1 contrasts what true worship and false worship does in a culture. So that so the, the preaching of Christ's lordship and his rule and authority and the, the uh, and that the coastlands, the prophet says, wait for his law. Um, look at Psalm 2, the nation's being brought into subjection. Um, uh, Jacob's already quoted the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. Go into all the world uh, and uh, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. If that's not the principle of the destruction of so social and political injustice, I don't know what is. That's right. And that's why in the West, we've enjoyed these uh, liberties, which actually in that quote, MacArthur discusses briefly, although he doesn't really get it, if you'll notice, he doesn't really get into that because he doesn't really know how to, uh, quite frankly, uh, at that right. juncture. He doesn't, he, he's not recognizing that the reason for the freedoms that they've got in America is generations of the preaching of the gospel. Uh, and that when you have generations of the preaching of the gospel and the assertion of the liberty and freedom of the church, you get the freedom of the church to preach the gospel. Uh, and you get injustice and, and uh, political and, and social injustice being addressed and dealt with. So we very much do have a principle. Let me just make one other quick point before I hand this uh, to Jacob for comment um, that, I, that I wanted to pick up that I noticed in uh, Paul's argument that's related to this, where he he... His minute point, um, we can grant, right? That that the Romans thirteen um, doesn't specifically presuppose that obedience to God's ordinance uh, to, to recognize the legitimacy of civil authority presupposes that they're doing everything right. And I don't think that was the force of what Aaron was trying to say in any case. It's a, he's phrased it badly there, um, but. Paul goes on to, to try and suggest that Jesus' interaction with Pontius Pilate is the model for us. Uh, now, he's plain wrong about that. I don't think there's any other way to state it. He's plain wrong about that. And Jesus himself makes the distinction between uh, how um, a, an earthly kingdom responds in a time of... Uh, uh, injustice and how his kingdom, which he is building and establishing, and of course, this is one of the most misquoted and misunderstood passages in the Bible in John 18, 35 through 37. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. And of course, he's saying there it's not from this world. It's power and authority does not come from the, 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 the way in which human power and authority in uh, society ordinarily arises. Um, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. <laughs> right. In, in other words, the nature of the kingdom that Christ is bringing, which is spread through the preaching of the gospel, is different from the human political kingdoms that we all participate in. And in those kingdoms, which is why we have just war theory, it's why the reformers developed the, the, this doctrine of the lesser magistrate and so on. In ordinary earthly political kingdoms, which are not identical with the kingdom of God, we can say that the kingdom of God is expressed in, uh, uh, in faithful Christian leadership in politics. We can say the kingdom of God is expressed and manifest in faithful Christian leadership in the church and in the family. But they're not identical with the kingdom of God. And the authority of the kingdom is through the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit changing hearts through regeneration. But we live in 
a, a, a cultural life and political world where if John MacArthur was right, then he'd be opposed to the American Revolution and there would be no United States of America. There'd be no Puritan Revolution. There'd be no English Revolution. There'd be no freedom for the church in, uh, in England. There'd be no glorious re revolution because there's no basis, he says, for any kind of resistance there. Now he's realized that now in the midst of the situation he's in, that that's wrong. And so it's a misuse. When, we, when Jesus is being tried and he has a vicarious mission to atone for the sins of the world. There's a uniqueness to that mission and to Jesus' attitude towards the Roman authority that would be different from our attitude to a tyrannical authority because I cannot suffer vicariously to atone for people's sins anymore. So we just need to be very careful when we say that something that Jesus did there is the, in terms of his atoning sacrifice is uh, the, ideal model for us. And I think MacArthur has come up into, against some real world experience in California. He's a godly man. He understands the word of God and he's realized that he needs to revisit that. And he's done so. And in fact, when you read, when you read the last letter that they wrote, um, it looked like he'd been reading Abraham Kuyper and was arguing for a kind of sphere sovereignty, which of course is the position that, um, that, that we represent. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and just in that, I, I've answered that question so many times, whenever you begin to preach like the word and the law of God actually has something to say about how we live in the real world. Um, inevitably, you'll get somebody who brings John 18 to you with their finger wagging. And I love to point out that that same word, my, my kingdom is not of or from depending on your translation, this world is the exact same word that's used the chapter before. So my goodness, let's let the scriptures interpret the scriptures when jesus says though they speaking of his disciples are, are in the world they are not of they are not from the world meaning right that they are born born again born of heaven that their power derives from and their mission derives from elsewhere but that by no means does that mean that the apostles are no longer in the world or affect change in the world i mean it's just Let's, exactly. For goodness sakes. Um, so sorry, I want to hear I want to hear Jacob uh, respond to or, uh, or riff off uh, what you just said there, Joe. I don't I don't even think MacArthur ever believed that without nuance, because he spent half a century ago. He spent a night in a jail in Mississippi for his participation in the civil rights movement. Right. If the Gospel Coalition is going to be consistent with some of the things that they've been stating. They, should, they would have likely condemned MLK for marching in Selma, which was an intentionally provocative march um, to display the uh, hypocrisy that was coming from some of the police forces in the South. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think we, we've been talking a lot about our, at our church about the various forms of resistance that we see throughout the scriptures. And as soon as you start paying attention to them, I have every single week, I have somebody say, oh, I was doing my reading in such and such a book, and guess what I saw? It's, it's more resistance to tyranny because the Bible actually has a whole lot to say about um, the government of the Lord Jesus. This is our Christmas verse, right? Isaiah chapter 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so the rule, the lordship of Jesus is to expand in the kingdom. And if anybody thinks that, that, uh, that the kingdom of God overtaking <laughs> the kingdoms of man is not going to involve any sort of resistance or political uh, um, fight is, is, uh, is sorely mistaken. We think about well, Daniel, right? Daniel yeah. didn't just disobey the law. He did it with the windows open. <laughs> yeah. And Mary in the Magnificat, uh, and I've recently written on this, um, 
points out that God is through the um, his work in history is pulling down the mighty from their thrones. When Simeon takes the, the infant Jesus in his arms, he says, this one will be for the rising and fall of many. Uh, the Lord Jesus said, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's going to divide people. It's going to be a fundamental division. There's going to be an antithesis that runs through every area of life for or against Christ, including the sphere of law and, and politics and education. And of course, Hebrews tells us that he's bringing everything into subjection. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be defeated is death. And Paul is kind of riffing there off uh, Psalm 2, which tells us that Christ is going to place his feet on the neck of all his enemies in history. And that involves, obviously, resistance to injustice, to tyranny. Look, think of some of the founders of evangelicalism, of modern evangelicalism. William Wilberforce, uh, who was urged on by John Wesley, uh, urged on by John Newton in his cause to bring to bear the fullness of the kingdom of God, the significance of the gospel uh, on the social, cultural and political life of Great Britain and her Commonwealth, which, of course, most famously, but there were many other things, most famously resulted in the abolition of the slave trade. And the, the doors that are, that opened for the gospel, because um, Wilberforce was pressing for missionaries to get into India. The East India Company didn't want missionaries in India. You know why they didn't want missionaries in India? Because they didn't want India getting the gospel and therefore a principle of freedom. Because once the gospel is proclaimed somewhere, suddenly there is now a principle of liberty that is at work, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I think you've hit on the keynote there of the gospel, Nate. Christ comes preaching the kingdom of God. That is the central theme of the Bible. What king, what, uh, you can't have a kingdom without a king, and you can't have a king who doesn't have a kingdom. And it's this gospel of the kingdom that we represent, and that must involve a resistance to evil, to wickedness, and to tyranny, and to totalitarianism. Maybe we can define totalitarianism that when we just talk about the what um, civil disobedience really is um yeah i i, I don't want to harp on this point but i mean in at, the, at christmas time i can't help but think herod understood this better than most right when the magi came looking for the king he understood a new king that's born threatens my kingdom that's right um and that's so, picked up in revelation chapter 12 of course where the apostle john sees the significance of that as the dragon waits by the pregnant woman to devour the child absolutely um, and it's interesting that uh, there herod of course wants to prevent people from worshiping at the first christmas so that he could save the nation <laughs> that'll that'll preach uh this uh this thursday evening joe <laughs> um I, uh, I do want to think, um, so I don't want to simply stand criticizing, but there's one last point that I think must be made about the, this article in the Gospel Coalition, and then I'd like to kind of wrap up our thoughts with what we are saying, um, though I think we've already uh, ventured into that territory. But one other thing that I think does need to be said, and, and I know Jacob will have a lot to say on this, because Jacob and I took up um, a, a bit of a, a scuffle with the Gospel Coalition. Um, over uh, how they dealt with Bruxy Cavey 
Um, Paul Carter did a series of interviews with him. They went on tour together and chatted. And, uh, and though uh, the Gospel Coalition admitted that there are many doctrinal differences, uh, they failed to call him out as a wolf. They failed to call him out as a false teacher, despite his denial of penal substitutionary atonement and the infallibility of scripture and all kinds of other things. And I look at the way they did that and sort of the, the tone and the position that they've struck now. And I, I want to say this, and I want to say this gently to any of the Gospel Coalition guys who listen to this. I want to say it gently, but I want to say it, you know, speak softly and carry a big stick. And, and that is, there is a, a deceitful tendency in the hearts of men to do what is easiest. And it was easier not to call Bruxy Cavey a heretic, though I think he deserves the label. And it is easier to toe the line and tell your people to submit to the government. Believe me, you're talking to three pastors who are leading their churches into meeting amidst the lockdowns. It is easier. I have felt the pressure this year. I used to be one of these young whippersnappers who thought, oh, I'll be, I'll be courageous all the time. And I just don't understand how anybody could be cowardly. This year, I've certainly felt the pressure. Capitulation is easy and it is tempting. Um, but uh, we can't help but notice the inconsistencies in taking Aaron Rock to task over this and in some ways letting Bruxy Cavey off so easy. Is there anything you want to say on that, uh, Jacob? Well, the Gospel Coalition didn't just say, only say, that Bruxy Cavey is not a heretic. They basically gave him um, three three blogs, three opportunities to justify his, or I guess whitewash his position of clear statements that he himself has made um, about the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, the inerrancy of scripture, where he's denied both. And furthermore, not only is that the case, but he, Paul Carter, um, on a blog with the Gospel Coalition, Coalition offered props to Bruxy Cavey um, for how nice he is. And essentially, I mean, Bruxy Cavey's niceness is, I mean, I think it's, it's almost the same level of niceness that we're seeing from our provincial government right now. It's a niceness that's being used to hurt people. It's a deceptive niceness. And so, so Paul Carter, not Paul Martin, Paul Carter writes a blog for the Gospel Coalition offering props to Bruxy Cavey. And then the same group of people, Gospel Coalition, instead of offering props to Aaron Rock for all the good that he's done, all the ways that they've benefited from him, criticize a minute point of doc, or exegesis. And I just think it's just wording uh, in a blog that he wrote. And uh, I mean, that's, that is, it's disheartening the time that we're in. And then, and then furthermore to that, I'm talking about Paul Carter now, not Martin. Paul Carter, who is on the Gospel Coalition, a fellow Gospel Coalition council member, has basically been on a crusade since then to make people be nice on the internet for the last three years. And then after Paul Martin posts this article, Carter um, posts a response to it, insinuating that people who are pushing for the churches to open um, might be participating in a modern-day children's crusade. Now, if anyone knows anything about church history, you know that the, the children's crusade was a 13th century um, hysteria whereby someone from, I guess, the Ger Germany um, led thousands of people down to the seashore and believed that the sea would part so he could make his way to Jerusalem and liberate Jerusalem uh, from Islam. 
But instead of liberating Jerusalem, instead of parting the sea, they got aboard a ship that was going to take them to Jerusalem, but the captain of the ship sold them all into slavery. So to compare this to a children's crusade from the guy who has been really pushing people to be nice on the internet, uh, I mean, is outrageous too strong of a word? I don't, I don't think, think it I don't is. I think so. So let's just clarify um, what is it that Aaron Rock, I think we all know him well enough to uh, that he would not mind us speaking on his behalf, at least a little bit in general terms. Um, I don't believe this is a child's crusade. Um, I think that um, when Jesus condemns the Pharisees, he uh, one of the many things he condemns them for is their inability to read the signs of the times. And uh, as I read the Gospel Coalition's voice in all of this, I can't help but think that they um, are people who are just missing the signs of the times. What is drastically needed right now is a full-orbed understanding of the gospel of the kingdom as brought to us from Genesis to Revelation and applying it because we find ourselves in the same position, I think, as Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We find ourselves in a nation that is not only ungodly, but trying to foist its ungodliness on us. And we find ourselves, I mean, let's not, let's not forget that those men were raised to levels of prominence that they might be able to um, turn the rudder of Babylon um, towards the ways of God. And so what is it? If it's not a child's crusade, what is it that we're advocating for, Joe? Yeah, this is an important question. I think uh, one, of the, um, one of the important things to say is that at the moment, uh, I certainly don't view remaining open as a church uh, at this time an act in the formal sense of civil disobedience. Um, in fact, I much prefer the expression lawful disobedience. Uh, it's an act of lawful disobedience. And again, this is, I think, a partly a reflection on the fact that not enough thinking is done or has been done in evangelical circles in terms of what you've just talked about, the fullness of the kingdom. We might call it a, um, uh, a prophetic outlook or a, or a, or a cultural apologetic um, where we're applying the lordship of Christ to the culture. Um, we, it, it's really important that pastors... Um, have an understanding of their own constitution, of where they live, that actually the, 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 the constitution of the nation actually matters. And so um, where we are, I think, uh, right now in the churches uh, staying open is it's an act of lawful disobedience to certain mandates, to certain um, unprecedented, let's remember, totally unprecedented mandates coming down from health authorities under the cover of the Emergency Act uh, to essentially strip people of the fundamental freedoms that the highest law of this land actually gives, gives to us. Yep. So the, the highest law of the land is the Canadian Constitution, which is the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And there are fundamental freedoms enshrined in there, which include um, uh, peaceful assembly, uh, freedom of religion, and so on. Uh, which uh, are being subverted right now. There's others, of course, uh, freedom of movement, freedom to earn a livelihood. There's so many uh, fundamental freedoms currently being subverted. And it's important that people understand, that our, the listeners understand, that this is unprecedented legal territory in this country. 
the charter has never been tested here. And if we look at the United States right now, there's been two uh, um, decisions by the US Supreme Court in two states, both in favor, have come down in favor of the freedom of the church and against the lockdown measures. That's so you've right. got legal precedent in the United States. Now our, our constitution is very slightly different. There's this section one caveat, which is I think fundamentally a problem. We're gonna see how big a problem. But right now the lawfulness of these measures has not been established by the courts. And that's why Civics 101 is actually needed for pastors as well, that we understand that this is why in a constitutional democracy that's uh, inherited English liberties, the mother of the free, the English parliament, that we have three branches of government. There's the executive branch, there's the legislature, and there's an independent judiciary. That's all government. All of that is government. And uh, right now we have elected officials in this country who represent us, who are opposed to these measures. There's a doctrine of the lesser magistrate right there. And there are constitutional lawyers right across this country in various organizations who believe that these measures are unlawful and they're in the process of bringing litigation. Now that is how a healthy, even though the courts aren't functioning properly right now, which has been a problem, uh, this, this is how a healthy constitutional democracy works. That's what it means to be a good citizen, right? Being a good citizen means you don't just mindlessly like a lemming follow every order of the state. Uh, this is the, the defense of the Nazis at Nuremberg. Well, I was just following orders. No, that's not enough, right? Yeah. We have to take responsibility as citizens to say, we've heard these various orders. Police have to do the same. They have to ask themselves whether they want to enforce some of this stuff. I've had RCMP members writing to me saying, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up to lock down churches. I signed up to arrest bad guys. So in a functioning constitutional democracy where we have three branches of government, we have to utilize those branches of government and take our civic responsibility seriously. Now, churches staying open right now are lawfully taking their civic responsibility seriously to act in terms of defense. And this, is, this point was made, Jacob will recall, at the worship protest, that the, the Canadian Charter acknowledges the supremacy of God in its preamble and goes on to lay out these fundamental freedoms. Um, the Canadian dominion in our coat of arms, Psalm 72 verse 8, acknowledges the rule and the dominion of the Messiah. Um, you can see the, the scriptures that are engraved into the peace tower. We know that that's our constitutional history. That's why we have ministers, not dictators. We have yeah. public servants, not um, uh, 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 public tyrants. And we participate in our own government. So right now, what's happening, the way I would characterize this, is lawful disobedience. Now, if the courts, uh, the, and eventually the Supreme Court, rules against churches being open, their decision may be wrong. And if they ruled against us, I believe their decision constitutionally would be wrong. Theologically, it would be wrong. But nonetheless, we would then be in the territory of civil disobedience. Um, uh, there may still be lesser magistrates, elected officials who are still opposed that we could work with politically using the constitutional route, but you, you, there would be uh, a civil disobedience. But right now, you see, civil disobedience would be to fundamentally question the lawful authority of a given state. Now, that, we could have another podcast, and I think maybe we should do this at some point, on 
when does that point come? When, when in the history of the church, especially of the Reformation, did many of these thinkers say that the line had been crossed when lawful authority had been abdicated by the state, when, when the, the evil are being rewarded and the good are being punished? Right. Um, so that would be an interesting discussion in and of itself. But right now, this is lawful disobedience in, de in the defense of the highest law of the land. And we'd love it if other pastors got on board with that. It actually it actually joined us in that. Um, Absolutely. My, um, uh, maybe I, you can just let me come to this at the very end, but uh, uh, to, to, to make a, a final remark, but uh, Paul Martin actually says it towards the end of his article. He says, if a case could be made that the provincial government's lockdown order was prohibiting Christians from obeying God, then there would be good reason to consider civil disobedience. Okay. Uh, so maybe what we could do is go through the litany of commands that God has given to us that right now the state is saying we can't obey. We can't fulfill. Maybe now I'm talking about it. I can just list them very quickly. Well, um, just before you well, do, Joe, I just, I, the one thing I want to say, because I think sometimes um, those of us who have been talking about this for a little while, sometimes we get talking in a language that maybe leaves some people out in the cold. And I just want to say two very, very quick things. Number one, anybody who might be listening to this that's saying, boy, Joe, you're telling me I got to take a civics lesson to be a pastor. And, you know, that, that seems like whatever happened to just preach the gospel and let the cards, you know, just sow the seed and let God do the growing. Whatever happened to that, I would just say, well, you remember that in the book of Acts, Paul was not opposed to using his citizenship and his knowledge of the culture in which he lived to um, question the validity of being whipped, being struck. Um, he also appealed to Caesar in order to extend his life and be able to go up and, and continue to preach the gospel to those in power. You remember even Jesus, as he stood before the, the sham court and was struck, he said, you know, is there a reason that you're striking me? Have I done something wrong that you're striking me? And, and so they understood the culture and the laws in which they lived and used those to their advantage. And so that's one of the things that you're saying. This, the second thing, and I use this analogy sometimes for people who, who are just new at grasping sphere sovereignty. And I would just say it this way. For anybody who is a parent, if the government made a law that said it is lawful for a police officer to spank disobedient children, I think every parent, Christian or not, would understand intuitively that that's a law they ought not to allow the police officer to follow, because intuitively they know that that's a responsibility delegated to me by God, not to them. And what mm -hmm. sphere sovereignty is, is the recognition of those spheres extend beyond just police officers and spanking our children, that God has delegated authority to very specific spheres over which he is sovereign over each one. And there are the sphere, the, the self-government and family and church and state and, and a plethora of others, but those are the major ones. And so all we're saying is that when the government comes and begins to uh, make laws that... Um, overtake spheres to which civil authority has not been given to them by God, they're out of bounds. 
And yeah. so, so all that to say, just to kind of help people catch up, and those are just some things to think about if you're listening to all this and it's a little bit new to you. Those are a couple of things that I sometimes use just to introduce the concepts to people. Um, but go ahead, Joe, and I, I want you to be able to kind of um, wrap up. Can we demonstrate <laughs> that these lockdown orders um, are causing us to disobey what God has explicitly commanded? Yeah, so uh, before I answer that uh, uh, very directly, just let me um, say that um, that's a very, very important point you've made about sphere sovereignty. And if people want to think about that a bit further, they can go onto the Ezra Institute website and find an article on state absolutism and the church. Um, and, um, you know, this brings us back to what Jacob said about totalitarianism. Totalitarianism is essentially the idea that one sphere of life, you've just mentioned a number of them, uh, can relate to the others in a parts to whole fashion. That they can, that one sphere can swallow all the others as though they are lesser parts. Now, in this case of statism, totalitarianism is when uh, the state, it's not just authoritarian, it's when the state seeks to usurp the authority of the church or of the family, the jurisdictional sphere of the family or the, or the church and treat them as though they are lesser parts of the state, whereas the proper parts of the state are municipalities, territories, provinces. Uh, the church may be located in a given territory, but it's not a part of the state. Same as the family. You give the illustration of children. And this was discussed briefly by the WHO back in the summer when they said that uh, you know, infection had left the streets and had gone back into homes and that it might be necessary to separate children from their parents. How would we feel? How would Christians be saying right now? What would pastors be saying if the state was actually saying, sorry, infection has gone into the home and we need to identify and separate out infected children from their parents, put them in isolation facilities until we're satisfied that the threat has passed. Would we allow that? I would hope we accept not. <laughs> I certainly hope not. So um, that's, a, that's a good way of helping people understand uh, where the jurisdictional lines uh, are, are drawn. Some things are given to parents and the family, some things are given to the church, some things are given to the state. And you're absolutely right in pointing out the Apostle Paul had no hesitation from using theological disputes to his own benefit, the dispute between the Sadducees and the Pharisees about the resurrection, uh, using his Roman citizenship to escape um, flogging. Remember, on one occasion, he actually used a Roman garrison. Uh, he accepted the guard from a Roman, of a, a Roman garrison. He escaped was, when he heard a plot against him, about a plot against him. He was lowered down from the city wall in a basket. Uh, so, and the Apostle Paul, when he goes before the Athenian council, he is well aware, and that was probably, by the way, a, a, a lawful tribunal as well. Um, he was well aware, you asked whether pastors should be aware of their, you know, their constitutional situation. The Apostle Paul knew his constitutional situation. He knew where he stood. And it's incumbent upon us to, to know that. So anyway, in terms of this, uh, this um, and I, I, I want Jacob to, to, to speak to this too, but in terms of the, the commands of the Lord, um, you know, the, the challenges laid out by, by Paul at the end here, whether um, if a case could be made, the provincial government's order is prohibiting Christians from obeying God. Well, scripture says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And if a man does not provide for his own, he is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So if the state is, you see, there are certain things that are pre-political rights. And this is the problem is when we get in the grip of totalitarianism and we start thinking of the state as the all-encompassing institution, we forget that there are rights that are God-given that are pre-political. 
the family's rights are among those. Um, certainly work and worship are amongst them. So right now we're being commanded, people are being commanded, Christians are being commanded not to work, not to provide for their family. So there's a clear contravention of the commands of God. Of course, we are commanded in scriptures to observe a Sabbath rest forever and to keep it holy. That's Exodus 20, uh, Exodus 31, Ezekiel 20, and of course, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. We're to, we're to observe this till he comes. Now, it's, it's been amazing to me that the most uncontroversial point, perhaps in the one of the most uncontroversial points in the history of the church, that Christians come together for worship once a week on God's Sabbath, is suddenly controversial. That uh, that meeting, that not giving up meeting together, um, doesn't mean well. You know, maybe it doesn't really say, and you know, as though the church has been under any confusion for the last two thousand years about when it gathers for worship. Uh, this is a perpetual Sabbath. Uh, it's a creational Sabbath. God's creation is the model for it, and we gather around the Word and Sacrament. The very name church, Ecclesia, called out people, ga gathered people, um, militates against the notion that the church can ever be shut down. On, on what basis could we, could we say that the state has the authority to suspend the functioning of the church institute? Because that's what's happened. The state has effectively said the church institute is not allowed to function. We are suspending the life of the church institute. Um, the state can no more do that than it can than it can suspend the functional life of the family, right? So we're commanded not to give up meeting together in Hebrews 10. You see it in Acts chapter 2, Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16. I think nine months of suspended or restricted worship should be enough for us to recognize there's a contravention of God's command there. How much more longer do we need to be locked down before we recognize that we, we've given up the habit of meeting together? Uh, and, and this has been, of course, both over Easter and Christmas. We're commanded to baptize. How do you baptize when you have to social distance? We're commanded to lay hands on the sick in Mark 16, 18. How do you do that if you can't touch people? We're commanded to, uh, if we're sick, we're commanded to call for the elders of the church to anoint us with oil in James 5, 14. How can you do that as a pastor or a minister? It's a command. Uh, we're required to sing together, greet one another, care for one another, exercise church discipline. I could go through all the scriptures, Ephesians 5, 2 Corinthians 13, Galatians 6, 1 Corinthians 5. How can any of those things be actually obeyed if the functional life of the church institute has been suspended? And uh, so, and there's more, but those are just a few um, off the top of my head uh, that uh, we could say these are commands from God that the state is saying you cannot fulfill. You're not allowed to obey them. Um, the functional life of the church institute, of course, the body of Christ's life can never be suspended. That's invisible. But the functioning of the institute of the church is suspended indefinitely. Now, I think the burden of proof is on the state and on those who uh, oppose the church's opening to show that the state by, is given authority by God to suspend or shut down the life of the church institute, which performs all of these functions. Yeah. It's never happened in history before uh, in this unprecedented way. And by allowing it to continue, we're also setting precedent for the future that the next bug that comes along or the next issue that arises, that the state will just say, well, the church will comply with anything we say. We've seen that before. So we're setting up a bad precedent.
Absolutely. And you, you, you said it uh, kind of quickly there, but I, I don't think this comes back to whether or not you believe that the government is acting maliciously in all of this. Um, we know we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that there are principalities and powers of spiritual darkness behind those. And I think it is very, very telling that we've been shut down now in Ontario right before Easter and right yeah. before Christmas. Absolutely. That is not a coincidence. Uh, Jacob, I've never known you to be a, a quiet man and, uh, and you've been sitting there quite quietly. So I'd like to, as we wrap up our conversation, I want to give you um, some time to, to speak to uh, some of the issues that you've been listening to. We have to ask ourselves, what, what is the limits of the government's authority? And I think Joe has covered that much better than I can. But I, I want to add a, a little thought that I had about this. And that is if the seventh commandment forbids us from committing adultery, that means that that, that implies that I have a right to my own wife. Hmm. She's my wife. She's not the state's wife, you know? Right. If the eighth commandment says you shall not steal, the implication is, is that I have a right to my own property. And so what essentially has happened is the state has come in and has stolen effectively the property of thousands of small business owners in the province of Ontario and have told them that they can no longer use their property um, for the free exchange of goods and services or for the production of wealth. It's heartbreaking. And the yeah. stories are very real. I had a conversation last week with a brother who owns a business um, had told me he invests 80 hours a week sometimes in his business, no doubt has leveraged um, his assets to fund his business and now is looking at 60% uh, cut in revenue and laying off 95% of his employees before Christmas and questioning whether he's going to survive this next lockdown. That's a real family. That's, that's one family. My wife and I went out for dinner just before uh, Waterloo went into the red zone. And um, we talked to one of the waitresses that was serving us and we told her how bad we felt for what's going on. And she said that her boss basically came up to all the waitresses in the restaurant and apologized to them for what had to happen and felt absolutely terrible that their hours were gonna be cut because we're gonna go into this, this gray zone. And, the, and, what, and if pastors are not advocating for these small business owners are these waitresses, and we are simply advocating for the unmitigated authority, unrestrained authority of the state. We are not properly defending our people. Yeah. And our people are under attack right now. Yeah. Their jobs are under attack. Their livelihoods are under attack. Their families are under attack. I had a small business owner come up to me after I preached on Sunday. He's stressed, okay? And he, and he said to me, Thank you, pastor, for standing up for the little guy. Mm -hmm. Our pulpits are more powerful than we realize. Amen. Little church, big church. What we say carries, and we need to stand up for the little guy. And, the, and how long is this going to go on, by the way? Mm -hmm. Two weeks to flatten the curve. Well, this new lockdown is 24 days. Or so 28. we're talking, or 28, four weeks. And when does this end? And so you're dealing with a state that not only is power hungry, but a state that completely lacks creativity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
The only thing that they know to do to combat a disease now is destroy our lives for our own good. Mm -hmm. No creativity in that whatsoever. So when will the church of God and when will the pastors of the Lord Jesus, those who have been called to defend their flocks and to care for their people, when will they stand up and say, enough is enough. This is absolutely abusive and you will not make slaves of my people anymore. Amen. I've had business owners um, in Toronto actually say to me, and this, this did surprise me actually. Uh, they said that they believed that the church was the only institution in Canada that had the ability and the reach to end the lockdown of their lives and the destruction of their businesses. Because we are united around a common confession. A, um, we have a, a rich constitutional history of liberty that we can assert. We're specially protected in the charter. Many pastors are not aware that even in criminal law, there is a very unique protection for worship. The section 176 of the criminal code makes clear that to interfere with or um, otherwise try to prevent or interrupt a public act of worship and the, 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 a clergy and the administration of his duties is a criminal act. There's no such protection for an act of education or a soccer game or a sporting event or even a political event, but there is for the worship of the church. And so there is a recognition out there is, uh, that, that um, people are looking to the church and to the churches and their leaders to who is going to stand up for justice and righteousness. Who even cares of the suffering that we're going through? The suicide rates are unbelievable. I have a, a, a nurse in my own church who told me she works in Toronto. She said every other bed in the eMERGE is taken up with someone with suicide ideation. Somebody's either threatening to commit suicide or has attempted suicide. And this is what's going on in our neighborhoods. And I don't think that's the time for us to be um, uh, squabbling over the turn of a Greek verb. Um, we need to be concerned with the, 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 the bigger issues of the, the, the kingdom of God. And uh, uh, Jacob mentioned one of the commandments. I would add this, that the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness, yeah. is vital in all of this as well. Because if we don't really, if we don't believe that um, the state has authority to unilaterally shut down the Church of Jesus Christ, which we don't, and yet we go along with that, we participate in that. That's right. We are actually affirming and going along with a lie. And as Rod Dreher's recent book, uh, "Live Not by Lies," you know, makes clear in. Um, these totalitarian environments and authoritarian environments, that's what you're asked to do. You're asked to go along with lies. And for us to say that the state can shut down the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, baptism, the, 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 the praying for the sick, appointing people to office with the laying on of hands, that it has the, the authority to indefinitely do that. Uh, we participate in a lie and we break the ninth commandment. And, there, and, and, and part of the lie is the is the hype surrounding this disease that we're in. Absolutely. A pandemic. So I pastored, we have 1,100 people, 1,200 people on our email list, okay? We get 500 to 600 people regularly attending our church on Sunday. I don't know how many people would consider our church home. I None of our pastors have done one COVID-related funeral since this whole thing started. Not one. I know two people, as far as I can tell, that have died of covid through relationships connected with our church. Each one of them is in their mid-90s. One of my our, our other pastors told me the other day, he says he knows 
twice as many people, young people now, who have died of suicide since this thing started. So part of believing the lie is, or, or living within the lie is, we need to stop living under the pretense that this is as serious as they're telling us it is. Yeah, well, in the, and in the grip of fear. Uh, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And uh, just over 450 people, just over 450 people across the entirety of this nation under the age of 60 have died with, not necessarily of, COVID. That's the government's own figures. Um, so the, the treating this thing like we're dealing with, and, and the average age of, of the median age of death from this nasty virus is higher than the average life expectancy of 82 in Canada. So, uh, and children and young people are almost no risk at all. So by, again, by fueling this, by going along with this, we participate in a lie um, that's being used for other political purposes. And we have to be, as pastors and leaders, we have to be very mindful of that. And, and just so that uh, I'm, I'm doing all the work of uh, creating our caveats for us, um, of course, death is tragic. And none of us are belittling those who have had um, who have had loved ones who have been affected by the virus. But go on to the the websites of the governments and look at the numbers for yourselves. And another very interesting one is go on and look at um, excess mortality rates throughout the entire Western world. All these places where we've seen horrific death mortality, as, as we're saying, um, you wouldn't be able to pick 2020 out on a graph in terms of the number of total deaths, all things related. Um, and on top of that, go and take a look at the, uh, the influenza numbers this year. Mm-hmm. COVID has cured the flu. And I don't say that, I don't say that to say this is just a flu virus. I, we really are not tinfoil hat wearing. There's, this isn't a virus. We, we are just simply saying by the numbers... Um, this is this does not justify um, the the massive infringement, not just on freedoms, but in just absolutely ruining people's lives. And anybody who thinks that the church is uh, being shut down is not ruining people's lives needs to get their ecclesiological understanding screwed on a little bit better, because none of us under any other circumstances would say the church is not essential. Yeah, the church I mean, is the I mean, only hope. That's that's uh, critical. The the the, the we, we the notion that we could allow the church to be dismissed as non-essential is also to participate in a lie. Well, and uh, you know we um, as pastors and as, as as people who are caring for a flock, of course we care about people's illnesses. Of course we care about uh, death, but we also care about people's jobs, their mental health, their emotional health. Um, the, 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 the future of their children being robbed or eaten away, their education being undermined and so on. It's the reductionism that's been on display that uh, I've talked about for a while now that's uh, so disturbing. And through the um, seroprevalence testing that's gone on over the last six months, we now know that the actual mortality rate is about 0.2. That's the median mortality um, across the board. So it's a, it's a significant um, uh, problem. It's a new disease that will be with us just as influenza has been, but more children have died in the United States of the flu uh, this, this year than of COVID. Um, and so it's keeping it in perspective. And, and I think the loss of perspective 
the, 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 and the buying into a hysterical narrative by many of the churches is deeply concerning. And we need to give, us our, give our heads a shake and come back to some biblical realism. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. One of the, one of the books I recently read was uh, Vindici Contra Tyranos, which is um, about a Christian response to tyranny from, written by a Huguenot. Yep. And one of the points that he makes uh, in the book was that tyranny, when it starts, it's interesting that he puts it this way, is like a, a fever hectic. <laughs> if the fever is treated, it can be cured. But if it is left unchecked, you cannot resuscitate a dead person, basically. Right. And this is what we're dealing with. These are the early signs of tyranny. And this is much more of a threat to us and much more devastating. I mean, the JCCF recently posted um, a PDF on their website that you can read. It's essentially saying just that, that the cure is much worse uh, than the disease. So the devastation from the tyranny is insurmountably and immeasurably worse. You can't, you can't quantify the devastation and the loneliness and the isolation and the breakdowns in family. And the, and the UN's, the United Nations own figure is that 130 million additional people have been pushed to starvation this year because of the lockdowns. 130 million. So we uh, are going to wrap this up because the three of us could chat all day. Um, hopefully this has been helpful to you. Uh, if you would like to hear more from these two uh, wonderful godly men, uh, Joe Boot writes and podcasts and preaches, and you can find all that at the EzraInstitute.ca. Jacob does all of the same things over at TrinityBibleChapel.ca. And uh, I just want to thank you guys for coming on. If you want to go and see more of their stuff, follow those, and there will be some links in the show notes. Um, but uh, I just want to end by saying we do this out of love. It's, it's out of love for the people who read the Gospel Coalition. It's out of love for Aaron Rock. It's out of love for Paul Martin that we feel the need to not bear false witness, but speak the truth of God's word into a very complex situation. And we are more than happy to answer any questions that you might have about anything that we talked about. So thank you men for being here. Um, and, uh, and God bless you as you continue to fight tyranny. It's always a pleasure, brothers. Press on.